story of my father and his egg, the fact that he made the world's largest jeweled egg. I suppose the passion and interest in that came first. The Kaczynski family business is something that I grew up with. There were several dentists um, whose jobs were literally just to pull out gold teeth. She lives there for eight years and they are incredibly productive. As soon as she gets there, really, she gets out all her old manuscripts. Full draft, really, of um, what's to become Sense and Sensibility, what's to become Pride and Prejudice. Nobody talks about Pharaoh's pants very often, but they're there. Some other sources, which again are all kind of murky, hold that La Pellegrina was not actually discovered until the 1570s, so it could not possibly have been right. the pearl that Philip gave to Mary. Welcome to History Gems, where today I'm joined by the brilliant Helen Carr to talk about all things John of Gaunt. He was a patron of the arts. Um, he bestowed fine gifts on churches and cathedrals in a way that was quite conventional for the nobility of the time. Um, and yeah, he definitely was a, he had an eye for detail, I think for me, this is most apparent if you go to Kenilworth Castle. He was the forefather of multiple dynasties that created what we consider to be the European monarchy today. Helen is a fantastic historian. She's also a writer and history producer who has produced history documentaries for the BBC and Sky Arts, amongst others. And she also has her own wonderful podcast, Hidden Histories. Her debut, The Red Prince, a new biography of John of Gaunt, is newly released and it's already received high praise. In fact, it's already been listed as one of the Times' best books of 2021. So it's definitely going to be one of the books of the year that you're not going to want to miss out on. Helen's absolutely amazing and I know that you're really going to enjoy listening to her. So Helen, perhaps you could start by giving us a bit of background on John of Gaunt and telling us why you wanted to write his story and why he's so interesting. Okay. So John of Gaunt is the third surviving son of King Edward III, who a lot of people are more familiar with because he was um, the king that initiated the Hundred Years' War. Um, he was a warrior king. He was uh, a king who lived for a very long time and he had quite a successful reign. He was very popular. John of Gaunt was also the brother of the Black Prince. He's another famous character from medieval history. Um, but he has always been a figure who has been somewhat sidelined in comparison to his father and his older brother um, and indeed his nephew, Richard II. But he is arguably the most important Plantagenet going forward because he was the forefather of multiple dynasties that created what we consider to be the European monarchy today. So the Tudors, for example, would not have existed without John of Gaunt. It was through him that that was their, um, that was their connection to the throne. That's how they, uh, how they marked themselves as legitimate successors through Margaret Beaufort, who was his granddaughter, who you know lots about. Um, so that is, that is who John of Gaunt is very, very loosely. Um, and my interest in him came partly because he is this sidelined figure, and I, you know, in he, but also had this massive impact on our, our monarchical history as we know it today. 
But also I found him a fascinating character in that he had an incredibly ambitious European mindset. He was, um, he claimed himself to be king of Spain through right of his second wife, which was in itself an incredibly unique uh, and strange and very bold thing to do for a third son, for not even the heir to the English throne. He was just a, a, a prince. Um, but also through, initially, it came through his castle building um, in England. So he had an extensive amount of land and property within England and Northern France as well. But it was his, through his main palace in London, the Savoy, which is the, so where the Savoy, the Savoy Hotel is called the Savoy. Um, and that whole area around the Savoy Hotel, if you've been like Savoy Street, Savoy, the Savoy Tap, there's all these pubs and things named after him. Um, and that's because he had this grand, opulent, Camelot-esque style palace there on the banks of the Thames. And it was really through understanding that this amazing palace that was there in the landscape of, of, of London that doesn't exist today. And it was trying to sort of reimagine it in my head and, and, and envisage it and envisage the man who, who lived there and, and it was the center of his personal administration, his sort of Castilian kingly administration that I found so fascinating for it then also just to be completely non-existent. So it was really, I suppose, thinking about John of Gordon in the context of the landscape of London that got me interested in him going forward. Um, and when I started to do research into the Savoy, it was basically like opening a, a great can of worms. And I realized that I just had to tell the whole story rather than just this, this um, micro history of the palace itself. That's really interesting what you were saying about the Savoy as well. And I don't know, um, perhaps you can tell me if I've got this wrong, but I, I think I've read somewhere once that wasn't it burnt to the ground during the peasants' revolt and some of the peasants broke in, drunk loads of his wine and got yeah. trapped inside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this is one of my, I just, I, I tell this story over and over because I think when you go and you stand in the vicinity of the Savoy and it's really behind the hotel and the kind of little, the side passages, so you wear all the linen goes in. <laughs> like if you kind of, you go stand around there and you think where and you look at all the street names and there are foundations of the chapel that still exist i think there's a little church there um and if you can if you get access into the church you can, I think you can still see some some remains of the original chapel that's literally it um it's just a, it's just amazing because you are sort of in effect like stepping back into history for a moment in a very physical uh present way because during the peasants revolt yes you're exactly right there was a, this uh, influx of a group of rebels who found their way into the Savoy Palace and they went down into the wine cellars where John of Gaul kept all of his uh, lovely wine from Gascony and um, they just got really drunk and they had this sort of bacchanalian orgy um, <laughs> down there was about 30 of them and the but, but whilst they were doing this their contemporaries who actually took the rebellion very seriously and weren't there for a party they were trying to, to, to destroy the palace and they were trying to destroy all of John of Gaunt's belongings. So they were creating a pyre in the Great Hall um, in the belief that they were destroying some of his goods that were in, that were encased within barrels. Um, they rolled these barrels onto this pyre and, and lit the pyre, but what they didn't realise is there was gunpowder in the barrels. 
um, because John of Gaunt was preparing for a campaign into Castile at the point at that time. And they basically brought the walls of the Savoy crashing down. And then obviously the rebels who were in the cellars were trapped, um, drunkenly trapped in the cellars. So they perished as the Savoy effectively burnt to the ground. On top of them. Oh my goodness. So it's, it's quite a tragic yeah. story, but there's also something to, like, um, it's quite macabre, but also quite amusing as yeah. well. You used to think about yeah. it in the context of many, many years ago. But that comes from a um, that comes from a more than one chronicle account of the revolt. So you, there, I think there is definitely some truth in the fact that um, some rebels were lost because they were getting wow, drunk. So it really backfired on them. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> me. Um, so, so John Gaunt was obviously somebody who was surrounded by. Uh, luxury trappings and obviously raised in the lap of of luxury um do we know anything about his his personal tastes in terms of you know was he fond of fine clothes and and jewelry and obviously had this magnificent palace do we know much about his yeah his tastes i guess yeah it's actually i think coming if if we're going back to this moment where the savoy is being destroyed the descriptions are of them destroying fine headboards, tapestries, jewel encrusted um, uh, headboards of, of, of beds. Um, there was a lot of expensive plate that was being destroyed. Um, he also had a fine jack, like a jacket, which is sort of like a surcoat type type um, thing that they used as a mock figure of him they impaled with arrows and axes etc and hacked that down so you get an element of um, an understanding of what sort of material culture he was um, engaging with at that point but he definitely did have a love of fine things he commissioned um, he commissioned the book of the Duchess from Geoffrey Chaucer which is the only um, the only poem he ever or the only prose he ever commissioned from him um, but so he was a patron of literature he was a patron of the arts um he bestowed fine gifts on churches and cathedrals in a way that was quite conventional for the nobility of the time um and yeah he definitely was a he had an eye for detail i think for me this is most apparent if you go to kenilworth castle so that was his main um that was his main castle building project into the 1370s and especially around the time after the Savoy was destroyed. So this was very much his project, whereas the Savoy was the, was the, um, something that he and Hedda Castle inherited. Um, and he put an extraordinary amount of detail and thought into the way this, this palace was, um, this, this, yeah, opulent palace was constructed. I mean, even in the, pantry you've got these incredibly detailed vaulted ceilings and that's a that's a room nobody's going to go into um there's a beautiful elaborate frieze that comes above the stairs going into the great hall um the tiling on the floor that was on the floor of the dais and on the floor in the great hall was was beautiful he had these incredible perpendicular windows designed which um which it's believed that Richard II actually saw and wanted to remodel Westminster oh. on. So he, yeah, he definitely was an aesthete in many ways. He was, he took pride in, he took pride in his property and his appearance and he gifted very okay. well. 
So there are all of these um, examples in his register, these beautiful ornate gifts that he gave people. Um, one of them following the Peasants' Revolt was when he was trying to suck up to the Scots and be like, please don't, don't, um, please don't attack me and keep me safe. And he gave one of the um, Scottish lords a little girl, uh, a, a salt cellar, a gold salt cellar in the shape of a dove, which Aww. I thought was really lovely. Um, but, and yes, his his wives, he gave lots of gifts of beautiful jewellery, um, a circlet crown. Um, the Duchess Blanche had a ruby wedding ring and a pearl ring. So yeah, he he definitely had an eye for detail and he definitely had taste and he was generous with that's, it. That's really interesting to hear. And you've touched upon his wives there and I was quite interested to just delve into that a little bit more because I think John of Gaunt is of course very well known for his love affair and the wonderful love story between himself and Catherine Swinford and I was just wondering if we can yeah. if we can learn anything about his relationships with his wives from his gifts I mean yeah what do you think is there can we sort of see that he did really love Catherine from any gifts that he gave or um, or not? Yeah, I think what really stands out for me in comparison to his other wives with Catherine is that his gifts to Catherine really meant something in that they weren't, when I say meant something, they weren't sort of material fineries. I imagine he did give her material fineries, and he definitely did. However, they, the gifts that he gave her were land, property, him even following the end of their love affair that was terminated for a period, he was still regularly sending wine to her home. He was making sure that she was always cared for. Um, she had property in her own name. It wasn't in his name. He actually, um, he traded his lands in Richmond in Yorkshire for her to own her own property in England that was separate to him and to her former husband. So she, he considered her welfare very carefully with his gift. And I think that's something that, that really stands out when you're reading through his register and what he gave her. So it was always money, um, land, property, mm. uh, things like um, affluent marriages. So her daughter Blanche, um, he arranged a good marriage for her. Mm. Um, he cared for her children by her former husband. Mm. So his gifts, they had longevity and they had meaning and purpose. And I think that he was trying to construct her her position in a very safe space. And I think that that, that is a way that he showed love to her. Whereas with Blanche, you see the, the gifts that he gave her around their wedding, and they were jewels. You know, Blanche already had a huge amount of income and safety. And because she was um, the daughter of the Duke of Lancaster, she didn't need him to provide that for her. Um, she had that. So they were... Yeah, they were kind of more material gifts. And it was the same for his his Spanish wife, Constance. Um, when he proclaimed her Queen of Castile, he gave her a thin gold circlet that she wore um, as, a, as a queen. Um, so, yeah, they. I think that that was the difference, the real noticeable difference with Catherine. The gifts he gave her were security rather than things. And more sort of practical, perhaps. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And... Which, you know, I don't know how she yeah. felt about that. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think, is it true that then he didn't have a particularly good relationship with Constance, that it wasn't a very happy marriage? 
Yeah, so he married Constance in 1371 um, before he came back to England. So he was um, for a time lieutenant in Aquitaine, replacing his brother, the Black Prince, when he became very sick. So this was following the siege of Limoges. Um, and he was there for a year. And around that, it's around that time that I think that he began to set his mind on the idea of Castile. And there's there's one suggestion that it was the barons in Aquitaine that suggested that he marry Constance in order to then uh, place himself in line for the throne of Castile. Um, and it's interesting the wording of that source because the wording is that they suggest your heirs will be in line for the throne of Castile and perhaps yourself. But he really takes the self bit out of that and he creates himself king of Castile and Leon. And I think that that's interesting. He, it's almost like somebody possibly said that to him, oh, your heirs, but he thought, no, but I could be that king. And that's where that sort of sense of ambition comes from. So their marriage was a purely political union. It wasn't, um, it certainly wasn't out of, of love. He married her very quickly. It was very unceremonious. He actually rode out of Bordeaux and met her on the road and oh. married her. Um, she was, yeah, she was, um, and that wasn't, a, that wasn't out of lust. That was just because he really wanted to seal the deal. He wanted to become King of Castile through right of his wife. And that was what his intention was. And I think he set his mind on it and that's what he was gonna do. So he then came back with Constance. Um, they had very little money when, when they came back because John of Gaulle had to spend it all paying off soldiers and who were um, threatening to, to leave um, Aquitaine in the service of the Black Prince, so he ended up spending all of his own money paying soldiers. So they had very little money and poor Constance was forced to pawn some of her belongings as soon as she stepped uh, off the boat in, in England. Um, so she was then placed quite quickly at Hartford Castle, which was one of his main residences. Tonight, it's a really nice little castle and it still stands, you to go and see it today, the original wall still stands that wraps around um, the, the old castle. And um, she stayed there most of the time. She was there or she was at Tutbury. So she was never really with John of Gaunt following that point. She was pregnant quite quickly into their marriage. She was only 17, but she fell pregnant with their daughter, Catherine. Um, and that was the only baby, surviving baby that we know of that they had together. Um, but it was around that time, exactly 1372, that he began his relationship with Catherine. So I think the real thorn in the side was, was Catherine because he treated Catherine as a wife and they had all of their both children. Their first um, child was born in 1373. So I think, you know, as soon as he came back to England, he was married to Constance. There was a big age gap between them. Gaunt was in his late 20s and she was 17 years old, so about a 10-year age gap, which isn't abnormal for the time, but also you can imagine that Catherine and Gaunt had a much closer yeah. bond. She had been in the service of his former wife, Blanche. They already knew each other. She was the maestress to his children, which is the governess. Um, I think that he just wanted to spend time with her, and he did. Oh, I mean, how did, yeah, how did, how did Constance feel about that? Was there, is there any indication that this caused ructions between them? Um, no, not so much. I don't. I think they were kept very separate. Um, and following the, following the revolt, Constance, the Peasants' Revolt, Constance was, 
was came to meet Gaunt and they were reconciled. So it was at that time he ended his affair with Catherine and they were they were reconciled and he really set his ten intentions on Castile and, and claiming his, his kingship through her. Um, but there's nothing to really suggest that there was any um, evidence umbrage. Because I think, you know, when we're looking at women in this period, I mean, how much was Constance told to expect that her husband would have a mistress? Mm. How much would she have aired her frustrations? Do we know? We don't know. And that's that's the problem because the sources on women are so few. Yeah. There's there's little interest in what the relationship was between Catherine and 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 Constance, other than Catherine, because she was the mistress and they were having sex out of wedlock, was she uh, called a whore and a, a villain by the clerics. So that's really all we know about, about, about that and about Catherine. But I can't imagine Constance felt good about it. But then we don't know how she felt about her husband. She might have been quite happy yeah. in her environment in Tutbury and, and Hartford. But no, I don't think that, I don't think that, um, I don't think that there was any evident uh, animosity between them that, that has, I've, I've noticed, that's for sure. Let's, let's move on and talk a little bit now about um, what we know as the Lancastrian S's. And uh, this mm. is, of course, a, a livery collar that I think we can, we can link to John in some way because I think his name is... is is the one that's first associated with them. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So the Lancastrian livery collar, it's, it's like a linked S's collar. So it's an, imagine, imagine S's sort of next to each other. So they're sort of, they're all sort of squished in and they go around, it goes around the neck and it gets quite low, so around, along, around the chest. And if you look at all portraits, like Holbein-esque, portraits later on of, of the 16th century you see a lot of people like um I, I, maybe like thomas cromwell uh or thomas moore wearing something that looks quite similar so it's almost like a chain that goes around the shoulders and the chest um and it is in these these little these little s's so this it was worn by john of gaunt's retinue so he had an extensive retinue which were people who were in his service, who lived on the lands that he owned. And he owned a lot of land as the Duke of Lancaster, an extraordinary amount of land. So everywhere across the country, from Hungerford, Cambridge, Pontefract, Bothwell, um, everywhere, you name it, John of Gaunt had a castle or property or land nearby. So the people who wore this collar with a high those who were in the high echelons of this retinue um, and they were his his retainers or they've also been called his affinity um, and his closest were his household attendants so you had like three levels of retainers so you had the, the lower level who were sort of the the tenants who dealt with the um the less important lands and then you had the, the middling retainers and then you had the, the close household um, attendants who were the people who sought to his person his administrative needs um, in the immediacy. Um, so those were the ones who wore these these linked S's. Um, so the people who are quite important, it's represented by wearing this, this collar. Um, so it, what is unclear about it is what exactly it was they represented or where it came from. 
So there is a reference um, in John of God's will to a collar of gold that was given to him by his mother, Queen Philippa of Hainault. Um, whether that is the collar or whether it was a copied from that original collar, we're not entirely sure. Um, it's something that was obviously quite important because his son, Henry of Derby, Henry Bolingbroke, later Earl of Derby, late Henry IV, he wore his like, this collar throughout his life and his reign. So it was obviously quite an important symbol of of Lancastrian strength and dominance, and possibly his father and it connected to the royal line. So that could be that could be through Queen Philippa and and the, and the collar that she gifted him. And it's possible the S's are in reference to the Sanctus, oh. which is a prayer from Christian liturgy. Um, so another sort of nicer, more romantic link is that it's possibly in reference to the Duchess Blanche. Okay. So Blanche died in 1368, she was John of Gaunt's first wife, and it was through her that he became the Duke of Lancaster through his marriage to her. Um, she died either of plague, but most likely, I think, childbirth-related complications, because she just had a baby with Isabel, who had survived. Um, so it's possible that it is. it means um, souvenez-vous de moi, which is remember me. So it's possible that remember me is in memory of Blanche. And John of Gaunt certainly did remember Blanche throughout the rest of his life. He wasn't only buried next to her, had this amazing um, tomb constructed for them to share um, by Henry Everly. Um, but she, but he also endowed masses for her soul every year. And there was a big memorial celebration for, of her life every year as well. Um, which was continued into the reign of his son. So that could also be the connection with Henry wearing that that collar. So the answer is, yeah, we don't really know, but it did. It was a visual representation of, of Lancaster and the Lancastrian strength and power um, moving forward into the next century. I love the the story of the possible connection with, with Blanche. I, 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 I hope that that's the, the real reason why it came into being, because that's just lovely and that's very touching. Yeah, we don't know much about her, but she has all these lovely connections to her. So obviously with the Book of the Duchess and the way she's described in the Book of the Duchess and the way his grief is described is very moving. Um, so even though she didn't live very long, she only died in her sort of mid to late 20s. Oh. Um, she she definitely had an impact on the on the lives of the men uh, that she that were connected to her with her son yeah. and her uh, her husband. And I know that Henry, their son Henry, the late Henry the Fourth, he had a bow and arrow. I think when he was quite young that she used to use, or she left for him. I think she used to use it actually, oh. and um, use that. And I. Just tangible. Yeah. So does that does that pop up in a gift roll or something? The bow and arrow. No, no I actually I read that in Chris Given Wilson's oh. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very. I did read that when I, so when I was reading. I remember reading that uh, um, about when I was starting to include Henry the Fourth narrative. And um, that book's amazing. And 
I, I can find it. I'll find the restaurants for you. Oh, I just, I'm just really um, interested. That sounds... Oh, that's just, yeah, yeah amazing. I don't know where that comes from, but yeah, I did find that. I didn't find oh. that myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's lovely. It's a lovely link. <laughs> um, so with these livery collars, was the purpose of them then, was it purely decorative or was it, I mean, when you were talking about John of Gaunt's retainers, was it sort of a demonstration of loyalty and I guess who you who you worked for or, or, or who your lands came from yeah I think so in this period it was very common to have people who were in your service wearing your colors so you know for example the I suppose you could you, you could see that in the with the crown today so if you look at the people who are in the queen's service they have the a very distinctive uniform, I suppose, is the way you put it. And I'm not just talking about the, whatever you call them, the big furry hats. But um, I'm talking about things like the um, the colours, the uh, heraldry that is that is depicted. It was really quite similar in this period as well. Um, so, for example, if you worked for John of Gaunt, if you were part of the Lancastrian um, retinue, you often wear blue, blue, or blue and white. And I think that this was just another way of demonstrating a sense of hierarchy within the um, within the system. So there is a there is a reference. There was a parliament that happened in I think it was around 1382 or 1383. Um, I'd need to check again. But John of Gaunt was there was criticism that some of these highborn nobles were giving too many people symbols or devices, heraldic devices, um, who were in their service to use as a sense of power and they were kind of wielding power a little bit too uh. freely. So the Collins complained about this in, in, the par- in Parliament. So John of Gaunt disagreed. He didn't think that it was Parliament's responsibility, but it was the responsibility of the nobility who were the overlords of these people who were using their power too freely to, to resolve. So... He didn't. I don't think that made him very popular. I don't think that he was um, he was a particularly uh, would be popular, particularly socialist mindset. But he um, he certainly didn't think that he certainly didn't think that it was problematic for the nobility to be using their heraldic devices as a way of differentiating who was in their service and who wasn't. That's very interesting. And I would just like to know: Are there any? surviving examples of these s collars i mean i know for example that you sometimes you see them on tomb effigies don't you yeah there is one there is one that still survives um there's a photograph of it actually oh, fantastic. In my um, <laughs> and i think i think this you can see it at the museum of london i think it's in their collection Wonderful. so yeah it, it does there is there is evidence of it that still survives and yes on tomb monuments as well you see it um, I think I would need to check, but I think Henry the Fourth might be wearing it in his. Okay, that's interesting. Oh, that might. Be I need to check. No, don't worry. <laughs> so, speaking about tomb effigies, and we, you did touch on this a bit briefly earlier, but I just wanted to talk about it very quickly again. I just wondered if you could tell us anything about John of Gaunt's tomb and the tomb that he shares with Blanche. Oh, I love this tomb. I'm, so it was designed by Henry Everly, but because they were both buried in St Paul's Cathedral, um, that it was a 
catastrophic loss of the 1666 Great Fire of London, as we know, which ripped through St Paul's Cathedral and destroyed many beautiful tomb monuments that were in there. Um, and they were buried together. Henry Everly was an incredibly popular architect at the time that he designed Kenilworth Castle. Um, he was highly sought after for tombs. And the tomb was itself was designed and partially constructed before John of Gaunt's death. So it was between, it was around the time of the Book of the Duchess was actually okay. written. So it was a few years after Blanche's death. So that's when it was, that's when she was then interned in, interred in this tomb. We have an idea of what it looked like because there's a sketch surviving from the 17th century, 16th, 17th century, by I think it's by Wentless Webster's Holler. Um, and it shows John of Gaunt sharing this tomb. So there was, there's this really lovely um, trend in the late 14th century, which I find really sweet and <laughs> really heartwarming where couples would be buried together hand clasping. So they would, the tomb, the monument would depict them holding hands in perpetuity. And there's a wonderful poem by Philip Larkin, which is one of my favorite poems. And he talks about this stone fidelity. Um, and he's specifically talking about the Arundel tomb. You can apply it to this, this, this trend of this hand clasping gesture in tombs. And John of Gaunt and Blanche are indeed holding and they're tuned together. So they're buried next to each other. We, the, the drawing isn't good enough to see a huge amount of detail, but we do know that it was um, it was encased. So it was there was uh, railings around the tomb. So it wasn't one of those kind of open tombs where you could look and just see the see the effigy. Um, it was actually sort of encased, and there was uh, arms as well. So he had a um, he had a shield. He had his heraldry as well there within the within the context of the tomb. But I think for me, what I found really moving was the fact that they were indeed clasped in, clasped in clasping hands, um, which is very different from someone like the Black Prince's tomb, which is all about military regalia and achievement and um, masculinity. Whereas this, I feel, is, is very different. It's about loyalty and it's about, it's about trust and love and this enduring sense of honour, um, yeah, honour and fidelity, fidelity to the first woman that he married, even though she might not have been the greatest love of his life, she was the first, the first one and the first of his wives. Um, and I find that, I find that. Oh, I do too, it's just giving me shivers. <laughs> That's, it's just such a devastating loss, um, how tragic that it's yeah. Here. yeah, and you do get a sense of his grief, and I think, you know, there was all of this criticism that he was he began his love affair with Catherine Swinford before Blanche died. I don't think that's true. Partly because before his death, he actually wrote to the Pope, and I've read I've read his words, and he he wrote to the Pope and he swore that the relationship did not begin then. And you know, Catherine didn't have any children until thirteen seventy three. So I think that you know, contraception being you know <laughs> difficult yeah. in the century. <laughs> I think um, is testament to the fact, and the fact she had many children, yeah. I think is testament to the fact that they probably weren't having a physical relationship up until this point. And also he was in, he was in France for like a, yeah. over a year. So I think, um, I think it did begin then. I don't think he, I don't think that he was unfaithful to Blanche. Blanche, the poor woman, was pregnant 
all the time. I mean, you wonder whether you've left, left her alone. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that it does demonstrate, it does demonstrate that his respect was for Blanche. And, and I think he was devastated. If you, if you read the Book of the Duchess, he is represented as the character of the man in black. Um, and the whole opening of this book, of this, of this verse, sorry, is, is Chaucer representing somebody who is coming to terms with grief and sorrow and loss. And you go through the motions of this melancholy, exhaustion, um, but also insomnia. And then very, he, he says a very blatant, hard-hitting, painful line of, she is dead, she is dead. And that sort of, it's not an acceptance, it's almost like a kind of blunt reality. Um, but he's also reading romantic literature at the time, as, as you come into this garden and find this man of black under the tree. Um, so I think that is a representation of how of how moved and how sad he was over the death of over the death of Blanche. Was there anything that surprised you about John when you were researching? Yeah, he surprisingly and strangely, I think that he, at the end of his life, had a almost like a, uh, a crisis in his faith and his piety and his sense of guilt. And when we look at Catherine Swinford, you can kind of see this as an example with, with her in a way, and I think this sense of kind of discomfort with his own faith and is, is, is present throughout his life. And you see this in the aftermath of the Peasant's Revolt because he... So you can look at the chronicles, right, who were written by yeah. clerics. So there's going to be an element of the sort of piety that's referenced here. But they do say that he turned to God and he admitted that he had been, he had acted out of God's favour and he blamed the whole situation in the fact that God was angry with him. Whether or not that's true, there's nothing in his in his, uh, in his his register, to, which is very detailed around the results, to suggest that he felt that way. Maybe he did, I don't know. But he did end his relationship with her, which did de does demonstrate to me that he wanted to be within favour of the church again, because the church were his leading critics around his relationship mm. with Catherine. So why, in all of this, all of this drama, your property's been destroyed, men who are in your service have been murdered, uh, you don't know where you stand in, in, in the um, favour of the king, why, of all things, end your relationship with your mistress quite quite quickly? The only thing I can think of is the fact that he was in living in fear of God's wrath, and he was afraid that his actions with Catherine had um, were to blame for the events that that occurred against him during the Peasants' Revolt. He then, very shortly afterwards, dedicated he had a shrine built to Saint Catherine. Oh at Nairsborough, which is really romantic in, in your life, but then, so that's that kind of, that's that, again, that kind of conflict between his emotions and his, and his piety. Um, and this is something that comes back again and again in his life. He was a supporter of Wycliffe for a period, who was, who was talked, talked as the um, morning star of the Reformation. Yeah. So he had Lollard views in the 14th century that only actually uh, came came to being 
fully within the Reformation, you know, in the 16th century, two centuries later. Um, so John of God did have quite sort of forward-thinking beliefs, and I think he felt very conflicted in his sense of piety and sense of where his belief stood within the expectations of the Catholic Church. He certainly did not support clerical wealth. That was something he did not like. Um, he was um, always set quite firm to the Carmelite order, who were an order who prioritised quite um, basic wealth. Okay. So they didn't prioritise um, things and material material wealth and possessions. It was all very sort of um, yeah, it was he, he that's the order that he always he always went to and his his confessors came from the Carmelites. However, later in his life, when we go back to Catherine and he marries her three years three, four years before he dies, it's three years before he dies. Um I think, however romantic it might seem, he's finally marrying the woman he loves. I think it was really out of honour and fear for his children being illegitimate. So I think it was really to legitimise okay. the Beauforts. Um, and I think it was to consolidate him and his, his himself and his actions in the eyes of God. So his actions with Catherine during their lifetime, being adulterous for all those years, I think he was trying to consolidate that by marrying her in the eyes of God later. Um, but then at the end of his life, there's all these horrible references to how he died and one of them is that his he effectively died of some kind of sexually transmitted infection mm. um and this nasty reference to him in the 15th century of his his testicles putrefying oh um which, how yeah. would you know that yeah but like <laughs> i don't think that's true like he wasn't a spring chicken when he died he was he was he was old older and in, in the standards of medieval life um but what was interesting to me and what really, all of this idea and this conflict with, with, with where he stood in his religious motivations and beliefs came to a head when he was laid out, as people are, so you're laid out, laid in state if you're a king, but you're laid out over, uh, for a period where you, before you're buried, so your body is there. Um, and he lay, was laid out in St. Paul's Cathedral for 40 days and nights. And that is like four times the amount of what would be normal. Um, and he was swathed in a uh, like a, a bath of, of candles. Oh, wow. So it's almost like is this he's, he's almost punishing himself posthumously by being made to wait in this state before being laid to rest, but also trying to be cleansed by the light of God within all of these candles, having all of these masses sunk in his soul as he lies dead. Oh. Um, so I think that that is a really obscure request and he didn't want to be embalmed so this was i mean i can't imagine he smelled very good by the time he was actually laid to rest but um yeah that's really odd amount of time to be laid out dead yeah. <laughs> effectively which is probably about like a few sometimes it was just it was just it publicly it was just a night when edward the third died it was he was laid out overnight before he was buried uh, at westminster um Whereas John got 40 nights, that's that's quite yeah. a long time. Wow, that's, yeah. I'm not sure if that's including him being taken from Leicester Castle where he oh, died. Okay. But it certainly was 40, it was in his will to be laid out 
goodness oh gosh uh, yeah i mean you're right you can only imagine how dreadful the corpse must have smelled if that's oh. basically lead yeah isn't it? it is it is <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> um gosh. yeah so i found that really i found that remarkable yeah. and i think that that was in in the end i think he felt tragically actually i think he felt um that he was somehow to blame for the poor fortune that he had with certain mm. aspects and his, his 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 adultery and his actions with with Catherine he he blamed it on that but he never blamed Catherine he blamed himself yeah I guess that's sort of kind of chivalrous in some ways yeah which he was he would never blame her I think his honor was like he was all about honor that's why he fell out with Richard II all the time. Because Richard II demonstrated he represented a, a generation where chivalry really was sort of, it was disintegrating the whole concept of chivalry, the idea of chivalry being this grand idea that you had to maintain an honour and it was a part of the way you lived. It just wasn't so much of a thing after the death of Edward III. So John of Gaunt was kind of stuck between this, between between worlds yeah. in a way. He was, he was in part in this world of Edward III and the Black Prince, where honour and chivalry um, was prioritised. I mean, the Black Prince served his prisoner on bended knee um, oh. <laughs> when he captured oh, wow. Yeah, when he captured John II of France, he served him on bended knee in his tent and gave. He was treated like a like he was treated like a king. He's, you are you're, you're my prisoner, but you are a king, so I will I will give you the best horse. I will serve you as your as your servant and your page. It's all really like really weird but um so he came from that world and then into the world of Richard II who would just sort of you know has string up string up his enemies and have them hung drawn and quartered yeah. so I think um I think that's I mean that might be quite a sort of blunt unfair comparison but I I think that was that was quite troubling for John of Gaunt and that sort of shift in priority between between mm, things mm. and yeah so so very much kind of i i'm i'm getting a real picture of, of him as being someone who was very um yeah someone who who was very honorable and who um who did have morals and um mm. yeah and and who as you said chivalry and honor and loyalty those were all qualities that were very important to him so interesting yeah and i i think that they were also i'd also don't think that they were qualities that he they weren't his qualities in a way they were qualities that were that he was taught that he adhered to throughout his life and he took it very seriously like when he was knighted he took that very seriously mm. um he tried to kind of maintain that knightly rigor throughout his throughout his life um i think the conflict came when his personal morals and his emotions did not agree with those taught morals yeah um and beliefs well helen it has been absolutely fascinating and brilliant to chat to you and i would just very finally like to ask if you can tell us anything about what you're working on at the moment or if it's a secret <laughs> yeah no it's not a secret so I am, I, I kind of lean into myself and I'm like, I'm so tired. So I just submitted a book. Um, so I finished this book in December. 
comes out next week on the 15th of April. And in the interim of submitting that book and it coming out, um, I have also been working on another book, which is a follow-on to my great-grandfather's work, What is History, which anybody who studied history will be familiar with. Um, and it argues he kind of set out, he basically set up the, the idea of history's interpretation, which is something that pretty much all historians agree with now, um, but is often forgotten in preference of set facts, which there are few. Um, in, in when, when, when studying history, and so people forget that the idea that history is interpretation, history is always being rewritten. So it is the 60th anniversary of his Waters History this year, and I, alongside Professor Suzanne Lipscomb, have edited a volume of a multiplicity of really exciting voices and historians to talk about a variety of um, historical of subjects. And the idea is that it is supposed to represent a wider variety of people, um, that nobody is marginalised, um, lots of different histories told. And we talk about the whole overarching theme is that we're talking about how we can understand history today and what it means today. And it's like a guidebook to people as to when you are reading about history, watching history on the movies, whatever you want to do, however you enjoy history, it's all valid. And it is, um, and it talks about that and it talks about how to understand it. So that, that's coming out on 2nd of September. So I've been working on that and I'm gonna have a little break, but I will also then be returning definitely to the 14th century. Oh, how exciting, <laughs> I can't wait. And very, very last of all, for those we, um, sorry, for those listeners who want to find out more about you and also want to purchase your brilliant book, which everyone will, where is the best place to find you? And is there anywhere in particular that's a, a good place to, to buy your book from? Yeah, so you can get the book from all good bookshops. I always like indie bookshops because that it's it's just a nicer experience than getting a book from Amazon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> going into a nice indie bookshop and actually the book will come out when the shops are open. Yeah. So maybe you can go and treat yourself in your local bookshop. Um, I also like using Fox Lane books and you can get a um, dedication so I can sign a book from, for you from there because they're an online store. Uh, but you know, if you're really desperate and you're like, I can't get out of the house, go for it. <laughs> so basically, you can get it from anywhere. Um, it's in all good all good bookshops and um, to find me I'm on Twitter and Instagram um, so it depends whatever your preferred platform is and I think I'm Helen H at Helen H car on Twitter I say that tentatively at Helen H car and then on Instagram um, I will check also <laughs> you never know um i am also i'm helen mh cast fantastic so yeah you should be able to find me brilliant thank you so much thanks so much for listening to today's episode i hope you enjoyed finding out all about john of Bourne as much as i did we'll also be posting some images of some of the things that we've chatted about on our social media platforms at History Gems Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to press subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. Join us again for another episode of History Gems.